you have your Bibles, you can take them and turn them to Colossians. Beginning in verse 16, we're going to be going through 16 through verse 23. Colossians 2, 16 through 23. On Mother's Day? Yes. Amen, Caroline. Yes, thank you for the support. We're committed to expository preaching. That's why we're studying Colossians 2, 16 through 23 today. And what I mean by that is we are committed to taking a book of the Bible and walking through it verse by verse. And my job every week is to clearly, clearly, clearly explain and apply the passage. My goal is for the meaning of the message to be the same message of the passage that the original author intended. Does that make sense? So I want the meaning of the passage to be the meaning of the message. That's my goal, to say, here's what the Bible says. So I'm not making things up. I'm not giving my opinion. I'm not you know, trying to tell you what I think about things. But my goal is to say, here's what this passage says, and here's how it applies to our lives today. Why do we do this? Because we believe here at Beach Grove that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. That this book is authored by the Holy Spirit. That it's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. That this Word possesses true authority and that it gives us the Word of life that we need and crave and want. Like This is what we need today is, is God's Word. And truly, you need something more than my wisdom. Okay, if you're here to get some tips from Matt on how to live life, you're bankrupt. Okay, You can go to a lot of better places, watch a lot of better YouTube videos or something if you want to find out wisdom from somebody. So what we're going to do here is since God knows better than me, we're going to study God's Word. And what God's Word says is what we're going to preach. Um, and since God knows better than me, that's why I want to walk through books of the Bible like this, because God thought we needed Colossians 2, 16 through 23. Does that make sense? Like, he thought this was worthwhile to put in the Bible. If I was choosing a text to preach on or a topic to preach on, I would choose probably anything else, especially on Mother's Day than this passage. I'm just not super drawn to it, but I think God put it in here because we need it. That's why we're walking through, that's why we're going to study tough passages like this, because this is the Word of God. God has spoken to us through the Scriptures. So what better t- use of our time this morning, this next 35 to 40 minutes, can we use then to look at what God said to us? Colossians 2, verses 16 through 23. This is the Word of the Lord. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. If... With Christ, you died to the elemental spirits of the world. Why? As if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, 
do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This is God's word. Let's go to him and ask for his blessing on it this morning. Father, thank you for this passage. Speak to us now. God, guard me from error. I pray that you can apply this truth to our hearts. That we can just sit humbly at your feet this morning. um, Receiving from you. Protect us, Lord. Build us up. Strengthen us. Nourish us. We come to you, God, to build up our faith. You had the words of life. To whom else shall we go? In your name, Jesus. Amen. Now, let me be clear here. I wouldn't necessarily choose this passage, but since this passage was, in a sense, chosen for me, it's awesome. Okay, so I just want to be very clear about this. We have some great things here. To put it in context, um, starting in verse 8 all the way down through 23, this is really the heart of the letter because it takes head-on what the Colossians were dealing with and thus why Paul was writing in the first place. So if you look at this section, 8 through 23, you really see why the letter to the Colossians exists. This is Paul really getting to the point of the matter. And in verse 8, this is the key verse, this is the controlling verse for last week and this week. Verse 8 says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. That verse, verse 8, controls the rest of this chapter. And the rest of this chapter is about verse 8. Basically, Paul is saying, believe the truth and don't believe lies. That's what he's saying. Believe the truth, don't believe lies. And there's two parts to that. Believe the truth the positive side, and don't believe lies, the negative side, to his, his command, see to it that no one takes you captive. So last week, we saw the positive see to it, verses 9 through 15, where we focused on Christ. He's saying, here is the truth of the gospel, here's what you possess in Christ, and if you get so filled up in Jesus, you won't need false teaching. So see to it has a positive sense, know the truth of the gospel. Now we're getting to the negative side of the see to it. Remember um, a couple weeks ago we talked about how Paul says, Him we proclaim, this is 128, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Teaching everyone is more positive. Warning everyone is more negative. This is more of a negative passage of Scripture where he's saying, here's what not to believe. Here, here is Paul kind of summarizing what the false teaching was in Colossae that they were dealing with. So that's what we're going to look at. What was the false teaching in Colossae? Now, I know when we talk about the negative side of see to it, when we talk about warning people, we have in our minds things that we might need to be warned about. Um, And the spoiler alert in today's passage is what the people in Colossae were dealing with doesn't sound too similar to what we were dealing with. So let's look at what they were dealing with. Number one, the Colossae's false teaching is Old Testament rituals in verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. The false teachers 
were claiming that if you really wanted to be full, if you really wanted to grow spiritually, you needed to observe certain Old Testament rituals. Specifically, food laws and festivals. So the food laws, this food and drink, this would be false teachers condemning the Colossian believers for not abstaining from certain unclean food and drink. They were saying, if you were really holy, you would not eat this and you wouldn't drink that. Now the false teachers were also condemning the Colossian believers for not participating in certain Jewish rituals like the new moon or the Sabbath. So if you were really holy, you would be doing this. Okay, so these Old Testament rituals, it's kind of like you're not doing this and you are doing this and you need to flip it. Now this does bring up a question. What Old Testament laws do Christians need to obey today? Do we follow the Old Testament or do we not? Is it relevant to our lives or is it not? It's a plausible argument there. Because the Colossians are saying, hey, follow the Old Testament. We'll talk about that later. The second point of Colossae's false teaching is man-made rules. We see this in verse 21 and 22. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teaching. Also we see this in the beginning of verse 23. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and aestheticism and severity to the body. So the false teachers in Colossae were advocating extreme rules. Do not taste, do not handle, do not touch. And right here, right there in verse 21, you see the importance of putting the Bible in context. Because I have seen this verse quoted as if this is what the Bible was teaching. Like they would quote that verse, do not handle, do not taste, and do not touch, and say, here's what it says. So you need to stay away from this, or you need to stay away from certain physical things. But if you, if you look at it in its context, Paul is quoting the false teacher showing how this is a false teaching, not a true one. You see how that's important? It kind of completely shifts what this is talking about. If this is a true teaching, do not taste, do not handle, do not touch, or a quotation of the false teachers, which that's what it is. These rules were according to human precepts and teachings. The false teaching, do not taste, do not handle, do not touch, were man-made rules about physical stuff that you must stay away from if you were going to be truly spiritual. If you were really going to be spiritual, you wouldn't touch some of this stuff. The false teachers were teaching asceticism and severity to the body. It says that twice, um, asceticism, in verses 18 and in verse 23. And it says asceticism and severity to the body. Now, I know we don't go around saying asceticism very often. Right? That's not really a, a term in our culture we use a lot. Not many ascetics, but here's what it is. Asceticism and severity to the body, these two terms kind of define each other. Asceticism here is literally in the Greek just the word humility. But in the context, it's a false humility. And the reason why I say that is because in verse 18, it says, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason. So asceticism is this false 
humility. It's this severity to the body. It, it, you know it's false because they're also puffed up without reason. They're arrogant. They have this appearance of wisdom, so they look really spiritual. It's really impressive. You might be drawn to their personality, but as we will see, it really is of no value. So what they're teaching, the false teachers, is that real spiritual people are going to do these physically extreme things. They're going to fast for crazy long times. They're going to um, participate in sleep deprivation. They're going to take a vow of poverty or something like that. Does that make sense? So a citizen, they're going to be really severe to their physical body. Now, I know when, if you're sitting there, and especially if this is like your first time here or something, I seem extremely out of touch. Okay, because this is not what our culture is going through right now is like us participating in sleep deprivation to get some spiritual experience. But... Though we might not struggle with this exact brand of heresy, the spirit of it is definitely alive today. We love to depend on our own works for salvation, and we love the feeling of being able to put ourselves in a superior spiritual position over others. We love to say to ourselves, I'll get super strict and and extreme and severe, and this is how I will grow. This is how I will advance, and this is how I will be acceptable to God. Now, there's a difference, I want to be clear, between discipline empowered by the Holy Spirit and man-centered self-salvation, where we try to save ourselves through our own works, where we want to be in control. That's what's going on here in this false teaching is do all these extreme things and then eventually you're going to have this extreme spiritual experience. It's in your control. You do it. You, you, you go beyond everybody else and then you, you will be good. You will be saved. You will be filled. But here's what happens. When we do that, it puts us in control and when we are in control of our own salvation, we can look down on people. That's what's happening here. They're puffed up. They're going on. They're, they're disqualifying The Colossians, by saying, you haven't experienced what we've experienced. You're not doing what we are doing. You aren't as serious. You aren't as committed. You aren't as spiritual. Because we are following our man-made rules. That's what's happening in Colossae. So they say, let me put rocks in my shoes. Let me not drink water. Let me not eat for a couple weeks. Which would lead to the last example of the Colossae's false teaching. Extra spiritual experiences. You'll see it in verse 18. It says, Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind. So you fulfill these Old Testament rituals, you obey these super strict rules, and then you get this extra spiritual experience. And the extra spiritual experience here seems to be entering into a vision which would end up in them worshiping angels. This is self-made religion. And the false teachers would go on and on and on about it. They would go on in detail about their visions. So that's that's what it is. Old Testament rituals, man-made rules, extreme, um, you know, treatment of the body that would lead to these visions. And also it kind of makes sense, you know, you don't eat for a couple days, you don't drink water, you deprive yourself of sleep, and then, you know, eventually you start seeing things. Totally checks out. So, the false teachers in Colossae seem 
like they once, or maybe still, claim to be Christians. They probably started off with some semblance of right theology. But you see a drift, like we talked about last week. People get distracted, they get bored, they get deceived, and they drift into idolatry, and then all of a sudden, they're focusing on angels more than they are Christ. They're focused on worshiping angels. And they're saying, if you were really spiritual, you would do all these things, and you would get this great experience. So, just one little thing is, what are you most focused on? Jesus or some secondary issue you've elevated? Because they would be claiming, you're not a real Christian if you haven't had this super spiritual experience. They would say, we've had this extreme spiritual experience and you haven't, so Christ must not be enough. You need to add these special rules and get into our exclusive club, and then you can be as spiritually elite as we are. So the question is, how, how do we go about doing this today? What does this look like in our churches? What, what might it look like here? It's hard for me to come up with great examples because so often we can take good things and make them main things or important. We can take a truth and, and elevate it in a certain sense. And so I don't want to give an example almost because I don't want you to hear me say, well, that's a bad thing. Does that make sense? But I, I, I want us to just read this passage in Mark chapter 7. Uh, if you will turn there with me, you can. That'd be great. just want to read this. Uh, the Pharisees built a fence around God's law. They wanted to be so sure that they didn't break God's law they, that they made extra laws that were nowhere close to breaking God's law. So they were nowhere close to getting near God's law. Does that make sense? So if it was don't walk 10 miles away from home, they would say, well, we're going to make a law don't walk 15 miles away from home, so we'll never get 10 miles. Nowhere close. That's what they did. And that sounds kind of good, but then they would take these man-made rules and they attempted to force them on everyone. Or they, if they didn't follow those extra man-made rules, they weren't being obedient to God. We see this in Mark chapter 7. that says, Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. So Jesus is kind of going after hand washing here. It's good I dismiss the kids, right? And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. So, you see here that Jesus rejects 
man-made rules that we often use and set up to, to make ourselves better, to make ourselves able to save. Okay, so that is the Colossae's false teaching. Old Testament rituals, man-made rules, and extra spiritual experiences. Now we're going to look at Paul's response. Number one, Paul's response to the, Colossae, the Colossians' false teachers is that Jesus is the true substance of the Old Testament. This is an awesome point. Look at verse 17. It says, These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The reason why Paul says to let no one pass judgment on you in question of Old Testament rituals is, of course, Christological. It's all about Jesus. Paul's theology and his discipleship is completely wrapped up in who Jesus is. Ultimately, for Paul, everything comes back to Jesus. So he says, don't listen to these criticisms you're getting about Old Testament rituals because these rituals are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Think about this, the substance and the shadows. I am a real body. Where's my shadow at? Behind me. And my body is making shadows. So is yours. And Paul here is making the argument that Christ is the reality. That Christ is the substance. That Christ is the body. And the Old Testament is the shadow. Now, literally here, when it says substance, literally it's body. Okay, so Christ is the body, is what it's saying there. And the Old Testament, the, the food and drink laws, the festival, the new moon, the Sabbath, are shadows of Christ. This is a classic case of completely missing the point. That's what Paul is accusing the Colossian false teachers. They are missing the point. They're being distracted by lesser things. Imagine going on a hike to Mount Leconte. If you ever hiked Mount Leconte, it's beautiful, wonderful. I recommend it. It's a trek, though, okay? I mean, you're sweating, you're hungry, you're tired, the sun's beating down on you, you think you're almost done, you're not done. It just keeps on going. And imagine you finally get up there. Imagine, you know, it takes you 10 hours to get up to Leconte. You finally get there, and then you sit down on the rock. There's a beautiful rock. It's like almost 360. You can see it's beautiful. And you, you, you sit there for a second and you think to yourself, wait a second, let me check this. I have cell phone signal up here. Let me scroll through my phone, right? And, you, and then you start Googling things and all of a sudden you find yourself looking at pictures of Mount Lacan on your phone while you're surrounded by the beauty. Okay, this might happen in our generation today, I don't know. But could you see how it'd be like, why are you looking at your phone when you're in the midst of this beautiful scene? When you could just sit there and marvel and gaze at God's beauty and creation, you're looking at your cell phone. You're completely missing the point. I think that's what Paul's saying here. Is you're focusing on shadows and missing the body. You're focusing on a cell phone and missing Mount LeConte. Paul is calling the whole Old Testament a shadow of Jesus Christ. Christ is the fulfillment of the law. Christ is the point to every verse. Christ is the meaning behind it all. Christ is the substance, the purpose, the explanation, the reality. 
of the Old Testament. We've already seen in Colossians that Christ has led a deliverance greater than the Exodus. He has brought his people to an inheritance greater than the promised land. That Christ is the source of all wisdom and knowledge in a greater way than the Torah. That he has given his people a greater spiritual circumcision. And Jesus Christ himself is the true and better greater temple. I mean, that's just in two chapters of Colossians we've seen that. Go back and read it. Now, I want to say this does not diminish the Old Testament at all. The Old Testament is the inspired Word of God, completely true in every way. But this actually exalts the Old Testament to put it in its proper place, that it prophesies and points to Jesus Christ, that Christ is the substance, He's the fulfillment, He's the body, and the Old Testament was merely pointing to Christ. He's the substance. That's why after the resurrection in Luke 24, 44, this is Jesus walking on the road talking to a couple of disciples. He said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. The Old Testament's about Jesus. So the Colossae false teachers are saying, hey, you need to follow the Old Testament. And Paul's like, hey, you're completely missing the point. All those Old Testament rituals are fulfilled in Christ. Okay, this leads us to a little thorny subject. So if, if Jesus fulfills the Old Testament, why do we still obey some Old Testament laws but not others? Have we thought about that? We don't go around saying, Jesus fulfilled the law, thou shalt not murder. We don't really claim that too much. And I want to point this out because this is often a criticism thrown out at Christians because we use the Old Testament to assert the sinfulness of homosexuality while ignoring in their eyes other Old Testament laws. So we get accused of picking and choosing sometimes. So why isn't that true? Why can Christians rightly say that homosexuality is a sin because Leviticus 20.13 but Paul here waves off all the food laws because they're simply a shadow of Christ. You really see the tension there? He's just like, oh, that's, that's shadow. So, I want to do a little bit of discipleship here. I think it's helpful to separate the Old Testament law into three categories. The ceremonial, the civil, and the moral. The ceremonial laws are all the laws about the sacrifices, the priest, the day of atonement, things like that. These have clearly been fulfilled by Christ and His work on the cross. Go read Hebrews, which is extremely clear that we no longer need a high priest because Jesus is our high priest. We no longer need sacrifices because Jesus is our sacrifice. So submitting to those laws, the ceremonial laws, would make no sense because the whole reason Christ came was to fulfill the ceremonial law. So you don't need to go kill a goat today. You don't need to go you know, make this certain offering because Jesus has fulfilled all the ceremonial laws. Now there's other laws that have to deal with the civil, the civil um, aspect of Israel, the people of God being a nation. These laws were given to separate Israel from all the other nations, like the food laws. So the food laws were made so that Israel would be this distinct, set-apart people, different than everybody else. But then when Christ comes, he, he declares all food clean because God's people is no longer one single ethnic group in a physical nation, but now it's instead a diverse group of people from every nation and tribe and language and tongue. And so it's not this one ethnic group anymore, but instead it's 
anybody who's placed their faith in Christ all across the planet. So submitting to these laws, the civil laws, would make no sense because the whole reason Christ came was to kind of broaden the kingdom of God, not just to be one physical nation, but now to be worldwide. So that's why food laws and, and you know, certain laws about property rights don't apply to us anymore because we're not under this one physical kingdom. And finally, there's the moral laws. And these laws are fulfilled by Christ's righteous life, but they reflect the heart of God, which transcends all contexts. So Christ does fulfill the law. He, he you know, lived a perfectly righteous life so that we could be counted righteous in Him. But those laws still reflect God's heart for us today. Now, in a sense, I want to say that all of God's law, all the Old Testament, every single law reflects God's heart today. But there's a different context for them now because the substance of Christ has come. For instance, so God still requires a high priest and a sacrifice, but that's Christ. He still has boundary markers for his people, but Christ has shifted things that it's not a physical marker of a nation anymore, but it's spiritual, inward. Christ is the true substance, so he radically alters how God's law applies to our lives. The Old Testament is true, inspired by God. Every verse is still relevant to us today, but Christ is the substance. And we have to filter our interpretation of the Old Testament through Christ and not vice versa. Christ is the standard that we apply everything to. Therefore, Paul's saying don't completely miss the point. Focus on Christ, not on stuff that's been fulfilled by Christ. He's the substance, and he's the path to flourishing spiritually. Number two, he says that Jesus is the true experience you need. Look at verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? The false teachers were offering this deep spiritual experience of worshiping angels in a secret vision. Crazy, but at the very least it sounds cool, right? I mean, it sounds wild. I get it. But Paul offers something better than that. That's what you've got to see in this text. In verse 20, he offers something better. Paul offers union with Christ. He says, if with Christ you died. Through faith we are united to Christ. Just like when Adam sinned, we were counted with Adam and thus we were sinful. When Christ was crucified, we were counted with Christ and thus we were crucified. We have died. Now last week we talked about dying to our body of flesh in verses 11 through 13. But in this verse it talks about us dying to the world, to the elemental spirits of the world. Which means that since we've died, we aren't under any evil spirit's authority any longer. We aren't bound by the way this world works any longer. Due to our union with Christ, we have died. Galatians 6.14 says, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. When you hear world, don't just think about this earth because it's a gift from God, but think about 1 John 2, 15, 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Paul's argument here. If... You've died to the world in Christ. Why are you acting like you're alive in the world? 
First thing to consider, the if. You see it in verse 20, if. Have you truly died with Christ? Have you repented of your sins and turned to Jesus to live? If that's true, a second thing to consider. Imagine you're a high school senior. Imagine you're a high school senior and it's May 8th. Okay, You are so close to graduation day. I mean, you have been going to school for 12,000 years, it feels like, at this point in time. And every day you wake up, you have to go to class, you have to go to the same place. And it's like you are just waiting on graduation day. And you are just dying to get there. Now imagine, you finally get there. You walk, they say your name right, you don't trip. You, you walk across the stage, get your diploma or the little piece of paper that's a fake diploma. You get your diploma later. And you walk off the stage, you're finally graduated, you're done. It's the weekend, you celebrate, Monday morning comes. Now imagine, you wake up at 7, get ready and go back to school. Next day, Tuesday, you wake up, get ready, go back to school. You would be thinking, what is wrong with that person, right? Like you've been waiting so long, you finally crossed this milestone, your status has finally changed, but you're living in the same way. Your life isn't matching up with your identity. Your identity is high school graduate, but you're still going to school every day. I think that's our problem too. He says, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Your, our lives often don't match with our identity. So I want to ask, is your life currently matching with your identity in Christ? With your union with Christ? Why would you pretend to be alive in the world when you're actually dead to it? Are you still currently submitting to regulations, submitting to the world, submitting to pride and pornography and idolatry and legalism and anger and worldliness when you've actually died to those things in Christ? Are you waking up every day working for your salvation, living in fear of Satan or evil spiritual forces, thinking that the world has victory over you, thinking that if you don't perform, God will punish you? You don't need a super mystical spiritual experience. You need a greater understanding of your union with Christ to realize I have died with Christ to the world. Don't get tired of me saying that, by the way. Your union with Christ means that you're dead to the world. You're dead to the flesh. You're dead to the devil. You have died with Christ. Now, this doesn't mean that you're free from sin's presence. Please don't hear me say, well, I still struggle with sin, so maybe I'm not a Christian. Trust me, that's not true. But it does mean that currently, right now, in Christ, through union with Christ, you are free from the world and sin's power. You are free from the dominion, mastery, and tyranny of sin over your life. You have died to the elemental spirits of the world. You have nothing over you anymore except our head, Jesus Christ. So live like that. Don't let your emotions have more authority than the Word of God. Because I know somebody's sitting in here saying, that's not true of me. Like, I'm a believer. I've given my life to Christ. But I'm not dead to the sin patterns in my life. Believe God's word over your emotions here. It says, if with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? He's saying, hey, what you're being tempted by isn't matching with your identity in Christ. You have died 
act like it. You don't have to live in fear. You don't have to live in sin. You don't have to submit to man-made rules. The world, the flesh, and the devil don't have that power over you anymore because Christ has triumphed, like we saw in verse 15. Okay, last point here. Jesus is the true path to change. We see it in verse 19. And not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with the growth that is from God. We also see it at the very end of verse 23. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. The heresy the Colossians were dealing with taught that the way to change was through man-centered effort. Try hard. Do it on your own. Be super strict and severe to your body. Accomplish what nobody else can accomplish. Have you ever tried to do that? Today is the 128th day of the year. How are your New Year's resolutions going? I'm sorry to do that on Mother's Day. But think about all the effort we can put into improving ourselves. All the effort we can put into being better. Thinking that maybe we'll be acceptable. Maybe we'll be enough. Maybe we can save ourselves. Maybe God will finally approve of us. But Paul says here that all that effort, all that severity, all those works, bottom of verse 23, the last phrase, they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. What does that mean? That all the effort in the world can't change your heart. You can't change your heart. Discipline, which is great in its right context, is never going to fix your biggest problem, which is having a sin nature, which is your flesh. Listen, even if you do amazing, even if you crush it, even if you hit all your goals, successful, me-centered effort in our flesh only leads to being puffed up without reason. So in the flesh... Even when you win, you're losing. So if you're out here on your own, doing your best, trying hard, trying to please God, trying to please others, trying to live a righteous life, even if you do good, you're still failing. It's still not enough because all the works in the world are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You don't need to try harder. You don't need a second start. You need a new heart this morning. So, what if you really want to change? How can we really, 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 really have new lives? Because I believe with all my heart that through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the, through the Word of God, through the Gospel, you can change. You're not immutable. You're not God. So you can change. Okay, we're changing all the time. So how can you change? Number one, the first thing is you have to be united with Christ. Repent of your sins. Turn from your sins. Deny yourself and your efforts, your, 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 your path to self-salvation. Deny that and turn to Christ in faith. And say, Jesus, I believe in you. I believe in your life, death, and resurrection for me. You know, I'm giving my life to you. I'm surrendering to you as Lord of my life. Do that first. Become united with Christ. And now, for us who are united with Christ, here's what we do. We hold fast to the head. Verse 19 so he says not holding fast to the head. That's his um, accusation towards the false teachers. They're not holding fast to the head. But we're going to hold fast to the head. Okay, so in not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with the growth that is from God. 
Christ is our head and we are the body. The church is called the body of Christ. That's what's talked about in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 18, where Christ was called the head of the church, meaning that he is the church's authority. But here in this verse, Christ being the head of the church means that he is our provider. That we are the joints and ligaments, a bunch of joints and ligaments here in this room, okay? And we are all connected together and all connected to Christ our head. And through being connected and holding fast to our head, that's how we grow. We don't grow through man-centered works, but we grow by Christ-centered faith. Christ is the head of this household. Christ is the breadwinner for this body. Okay, what we do as Christians, as, as ligaments and joints, is we receive. That's what verse 6 says. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. So how do you grow? How do you change? You become nourished by Christ. And then we grow with the growth that is from God. That's verse 19. And that's the growth you need. Not growth by human works. Not growth by extra effort. But you need a new heart. You need to become a new creation. You need growth given by the supernatural power of God that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. That's what Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27 says. This is a prophecy, a prophecy of what's to come, what we're experiencing right now. Where he says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That's the growth we need from God. That we can never produce through our own effort. We need a new heart for God to take out our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. We need the spirit's work in our lives. We need to hold fast to Jesus who will continue to grow us. Now practically, I'm not saying not to try, to never put effort. We saw that in chapter 1. 29 where he says for this I toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me it's true effort but it's effort that's not relying on ourselves but it's relying on our union with Christ holding fast to our head and, and trusting in him to nourish us and practically I know this sounds weird and impractical and theoretical where it's like I wish you would just give me something to do but you're telling me to hold fast to Jesus and he'll grow me. I wish I had 18 steps on how to live a better life. And that's the reason why the false teaching in Colossae was so tempting. Do you see that? Because we want those rules. We want to say, oh, I just got to do these things. I just got to follow Old Testament rituals and, and man-made rules and, and you know, have this experience and I'm good. But instead, that's not the way of Christ. We, we receive from Christ. We are nourished by Christ our head. If anybody ever loses weight, you ever see anybody that loses weight, they drop two pounds and you notice it. You'll always have people coming up to you asking for the secret. How did you do it? What, what is it? And what they want is they want the secret. They want the hot tip, the, the secret sauce, the banned pills, the extreme practices. The person who asks never wants to hear clean eating and regular exercise over a long period of time. Nobody ever wants to hear that, okay? I've been asked that before, and I say that. They don't want to hear that. They want to say, just, you know, stand on your head for two minutes a day, and it just fell off. Okay? That's how we can be spiritually. We want shortcuts. We want a fix that puts us in control. We want an experience that makes us superior to other people. Don't be tempted by that. Hold fast to the head. Verse 6, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so 
walk in them. Christian, you have to be prepared to resist. See to it that no one takes you captive. False teachers, false theologies, false philosophies are going to swoop in and tell you that Christ is not enough. Some of them might not even seem that bad, but they may distract you from Christ. They might say you need to adopt this opinion or you need to begin this practice or you need to have this experience because union with Christ is not enough. God's word for you this morning is therefore let no one pass judgment on you. Verse 18, let no one disqualify you. Do not submit to human precepts and teachings, but instead hold fast to our head and you'll grow with the growth from God. He is enough. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus. Will you protect us, Lord? So many false ideologies and teachings, so much danger, so many people trying to take us captive. God, I pray that you strengthen us, God. We want to hold fast to you, Jesus. We want to be nourished by you. God, will you fill us spiritually? God, I pray for these people. I have a heart for them. I love them. God, I pray that you can fill us up. God, that we can seek you. God, that we can... um, you know, be watchful, be mindful. God, I pray that we will recognize our union with you, Jesus, and that can bear fruit in our lives. Holy Spirit, we need your work. Change us, Lord. We have sin patterns. We have bad habits. We have things we need to change, God. We, we lay them before you now in humble, broken hearts, realizing that we've made a mess of our lives and we need you to fix it. And God, I pray that every morning we can wake up and say, I'm going to make a mess of my life. Jesus, I need you to fix it. We're holding fast to you. Nourish us. Grow us with the growth that is from God. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Thank you guys so much for coming again. Happy Mother's Day. I have just a couple of announcements I want to to cover before we go. Um, Number one, people put things up here and it's just like, you shouldn't have done that. I'm never going to see it. But I saw this one. Okay, we got baby bottles. We're donating to the Pregnancy Resource Center. There's still time, I'm sure, if you want to do that today because it's Mother's Day. It's a great thing to do. We're dropping them off in this red bucket right here. Okay, so if you have any, okay, take it. Drop it off in that red bucket as you leave. If you're a first-time guest, I would encourage you to grab a green card right in front of you, fill it out, and bring it to the hospitality um, desk right there. We have a gift for you, and we really want to get to know you and and get in touch. So please go back there and see Caroline. Um, Also back there, we have a sign-up for our membership class, um, which is in a couple weeks. So if you are interested in joining us as a church, please come up there and sign up so we know how many people are there. It's going to be a great time. Um, And then finally, um, I don't know if he's in the room currently, um, but I think he's peeking his head in. Right there's Jack, and so this is actually... Um, Jack's last Sunday with us on staff here at Beach Grove. Um, his, this Wednesday will be his last Wednesday, so make sure he's done such a great job. He served this church well. He's poured his heart and soul and life into it over the past couple years. I had a great time getting to know him over the past couple months. So please go thank him for what he's done in this church um, and, and let him know we expect to see him back. Sound good? So make sure to talk to him. Besides that, happy Mother's Day. You guys have a great Sunday. You are dismissed.